from the newsroom of The Washington Post. This is Cleve Lutzen with The Washington Post. It's Ellen Nakashima with The Washington Post. This is Post Reports. I'm Martine Powers. It's Tuesday, July 30th. Today, what Congress is doing to improve election security, language and identity in the presidential race, and the rise of C-sections in Brazil. In your investigation, did you think that this was a single attempt by the Russians to get involved in our election, or did you find evidence to suggest they'll try to do this again? Oh, it wasn't a single attempt. Uh, They're doing it as we sit here. And they expect to do it uh, 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 during the, the next campaign. When former special counsel Robert Mueller testified on Capitol Hill last week, he warned against Russian interference in the 2020 election. 24 hours later, the Senate Intelligence Committee released a report on election security. This is the one that has the handshake between the Republicans and the Democrats. And this report was produced with the endorsement of everybody on that panel except for one Democrat on the panel. And that says something when you can get them all to agree. Current immersion covers national security for the Post. They detailed how there had been attempts to infiltrate elections in 50 states, how that there had been failings on this part of the Obama administration, then also communication failures. And there's recommendations in there of how to remedy that and also of what the standard of good election security equipment and measures looks like. Well, so what were those recommendations? What do they want to see happen? Well, they want to see better communication between the federal agencies and the states when they see election threats. They recommended having things like verifiable paper ballots for being able to prove that a paper trail exists of of the votes, et cetera. So if there's any question after the fact of what the election machine actually tabulated, you can have the the paper ballots to go along with the digital record. Right. That's one of the more popular recommendations that they had about steps that you can take in order to kind of harden your election infrastructure. They also recommended that, you know, at a national level, that there's warnings given to potential would-be foreign interferer actors about if you do this, this is what the consequences will be. We have not actually outlined that in hard doctrine-type form. And so they're both recommending defenses but also offenses for being able to counteract this in the future. So now that this bipartisan congressional team has released this report and these recommendations about election security, is Congress actually doing anything to put those recommendations into place? Aha. Well, that is the big question, right? And this is the big tension now. Because as much as you do have the bipartisan handoff on we should be doing something, you don't have bipartisan unity in the rest of the Senate as to, okay, well, let's do actually do something. There's all kinds of measures out there that address pieces of this, and some of them have just Democratic support. Some of them have bipartisan support. It's a very delicate balance to carve out this bipartisan backing for any of these things and to then present it to the leader and say, well, this is what we should vote on. And so the leader has basically found everything that has been out there in bill form, which does sometimes dovetail with what the Senate Intel Committee did, to be unsatisfactory, to be premature, to be overly zealous. It's just a highly partisan bill from the same folks who spent two years hyping up a conspiracy theory about President Trump and Russia and who continue to ignore this administration's progress at correcting the Obama administration's failures on this subject in the 2018 election. And so he has not let those come up for an up or down vote on the Senate floor. Therefore, I object. 
Mr. President. Objection is heard. Mr. President. Democratic leader. Just for a moment. And Democrats have taken McConnell's reticence to let any of those go forward as a across-the-board campaign to squash them and their efforts to actually protect against future election security threats. The conjecture is that he's doing this in deference to President Trump, who has always equated the discussion of Russian meddling with the legitimacy of his own presidency. I would suggest to my friend, the majority leader, if he doesn't like this bill, let's put another bill on the floor and debate it. But so far, we have done nothing, absolutely nothing in this chamber to protect our country and its election security. Yield the floor. But Mitch McConnell is actually doubling down on this. He responded to these criticisms, and he also responded to one of her colleagues on the opinion staff that actually wrote about this. Well, on uh, Monday afternoon, he took to the Senate floor and he excoriated, not in name, the press for going after him for blocking election security bills. I mean, it seems like he's mostly directing his ire toward a Dana Milbank column that called him a Russian asset. These pundits are lying. Lying when they dismiss the work that has been done. They're lying when they insist I have personally blocked actions, which in fact I have championed and the Senate has passed. But he's also directing it towards the Democrats who have effectively accused him of the same. Keeping our republic means we can't let modern day McCarthyism win. So here's my commitment. No matter how much they lie, no matter how much they bully, I will not be intimidated. It is now ratcheted up to a level of anger rhetoric that is far more incendiary than what we've seen. And so now we're having this political battle over what is effectively should be a nonpartisan issue. So if, at least for now, it seems like the Senate is not going to be doing anything significant to improve election security, where does that leave the potential state of our elections next year? Well, there's steps that can be taken short of Congress actually passing something. There's still that $380 million that Congress approved last year. That still hasn't all been spent yet, so states can continue to dip into that, those that still have the the untapped funds, as well as just dipping into their own funds to try to improve the security of their machines and their systems and bring in the experts they need, et cetera. There have been steps taken to improve the speed and the ability of the Department of Homeland Security officials to communicate the more sensitive threats that can't be necessarily publicly broadcast. And there has clearly been a public awareness campaign. I mean, the Senate Intel report is a part of that. But also, we have been talking about this for the last two and a half years of look out for things that seem shady, that there can be influence campaigns all over the place, and that you are vulnerable, we are vulnerable to having this potentially happen and happen around elections. So theoretically, that might help a little bit. Theoretically, that might help a little bit, exactly. But it's not the whole show, right? Everybody believes that you need some sort of legal changes in order to actually be able to solidify these standards so that there actually is a federal standard. I mean, look, some Republicans object to that because they think the states should be fully in control of this. But if the states have haphazard ways of of going towards protecting their elections and then you have a federal election with no consistency— that can pose a real problem. So that, in theory, if someone is trying to interfere with the election, they don't have to hit all 50 states. They just have to hit the five or six weakest states. And that's a big concern. Or just a particular district in a state that you know is going to be real close. But you don't have to do much to call into question the legitimacy of a small number of votes in a state that is decided on a small number of votes in an election that may be decided on a small number of electoral college votes to see what the problem is. It doesn't have to be a nationwide infiltration. It can just be a very 
targeted thing. And as we learned in the last election, the Russians seem to have a good idea about how our map seems to work at, at various points in their interference campaign. We know more about what we should be afraid of this time heading into 2020. We are somewhat better equipped to address that. But just because we know that there is danger does not mean we know what the specific danger is. And if the people that run the elections are not equipped to guard against a variety of forms of danger, it doesn't necessarily mean that you, because you know there are vulnerabilities, you can actually protect against them affecting you. We are better equipped and better aware, and yet we don't know what the threat exactly is going to be next time. And so there may be holes in the patchwork of defense that mean that we get hit just as hard because, as many people say, we haven't done enough to shore up the defenses absolutely across the board. Karin Demergen covers national security for The Washington Post. Tuesday and Wednesday night, the Democratic candidates for president take the stage for their second set of debates. After the last debate, one thing a lot of people were talking about was all the candidates speaking Spanish. Cada persona en el éxito de esta economía. Pero la situación ahora es inaceptable. Es de presidente a atacado. Me llamo Julian Castro y estoy postulando por presidente de los Estados Unidos. The very fact that I can say that tonight shows the progress that we have made in this country. I've been thinking a lot about Julian Castro since the last debate. This is Post reporter Samantha Schmidt. It was just such an interesting juxtaposition on that debate stage because here you had two candidates who were flaunting their use of Spanish. Right from the get-go, Beto O'Rourke started speaking Spanish, and we had Cory Booker speaking in Spanish. And Julian Castro, who's the only Latino in the race right now, waited until the very end to just briefly speak in Spanish. That was really striking to me, and it said a lot about the Latino community today. And I think he represented something that we haven't really seen before on such a national stage. And what is that? Like, what does he represent? He represents a huge segment of the Latino community who were born in the United States who don't speak Spanish today. All right. Samantha, you should have Victor Castro. Hi, Samantha. How are you? So you actually went back to Julian Castro to ask him about that moment on the debate stage and what he thought about it, what other people thought about it. What did he say? You know, he seemed a little frustrated by the question because he's gotten this over and over and over again, not just in this election, but also in 2016. He's been constantly asked by reporters and other folks, why don't you speak Spanish? And he's, I think, frustrated by that question because to him, it's such a small part of what it means to be Latino. For him, he's got such a connection to this community, and he feels that uh, people tend to talk about this issue in kind of very black and white terms, that either you speak Spanish or you don't. But he sees it as more of a continuum. I grew up listening to my grandmother um, speak some Spanish to her friends, and, you know, she watched telenovelas on TV. So I was around some Spanish, but the focus really was on English. 
And of course, there are a lot of historical reasons for why many people like Julian Castro didn't end up growing up speaking Spanish fluently. Yeah, you know, not just with Spanish, but with any language, as you kind of go down the line of generations in your family, you're less and less likely to preserve the language. But there's also a particular historical reason for this in the Latino community, and especially in the southwest part of the United States. There were generations of students who were put into segregated schools. A lot of that oppression was internalized, especially in generations past. But I would say even now that the attitude towards Spanish calls Latinos to see that language. And even yourself and other people of the same heritage as lesser than. You know, a part of the story is being able to overcome that. I spoke with one family, one one mother who told me that her grandmother told her about the Mexican school that was for all the Mexican kids. It was a public school that was segregated. And even in the 60s and 70s, there were people who would get detention slips for speaking in Spanish, that they could get kicked out of school for speaking in Spanish and you know, sent to the principal's office for it. So there were generations of Latinos and especially Mexican-Americans who were really discouraged from speaking Spanish. And so a lot of them decided they didn't want to teach their kids Spanish. It just became the routine to speak English. And that was due in no small measure to the fact that Spanish had been looked down upon and that in my grandmother's time and my mother's time that you would get punished for speaking Spanish. And I can imagine that for someone like Julian Castro, it gets really frustrating when you have people looking at your Spanish fluency and making kind of determinations about who you are or like what your level of authenticity is in in the Latino community, because that is the reality for a lot of Hispanic American people in the U.S. right now is that they speak some Spanish or understand some Spanish, but maybe don't speak it fluently and that there is this continuum and this idea that some people have of what it means to be Hispanic in America is really one-dimensional. Yeah, and it. I also think it brings in this double standard as well about what we expect of Latinos or, or people who look like they should speak a certain language, right? So I spoke with some professors who said that, you know, when you're a Latino, you're expected to speak perfect, impeccable Spanish. And if you're a white person who's learning a second language, you're kind of showered with praise for enriching your, yourself, for educating yourself and learning another language. And there's a, a real double standard there that someone like Julian Castro is expected to speak perfect Spanish, but then someone like Beto O'Rourke is you know, showered with praise for, for speaking Spanish that maybe isn't always perfect either. From the people that you talk to about this, do you get the sense that people feel that Julian Castro's candidacy and and who he is as a presidential candidate, that it's kind of broadening our sense of what it means to be Latino? Yes, I think a lot of people feel that that this is shedding light on the diversity of the Latino community, that so often we talk about Latinos, we talk about immigrants, and we talk about people who speak Spanish, but it's a huge and incredibly diverse community. I think that it also just opens up this conversation about privilege, about our history, about discrimination in this country, about all of the reasons why a lot of you know, grandsons and granddaughters of immigrants don't speak Spanish. 
for a lot of Latinos, it's very refreshing to hear a presidential candidate talk about these issues in a nuanced way and addressing this this history that so many people are still unaware of. Do you think that we're going to hear more candidates speaking or trying to speak Spanish at these upcoming debates? I'm really interested to see that. I think that there was a kind of a mix of reactions to the Spanish that was spoken at the last round of debates, especially with Telemundo. There's definitely a lot of Latino viewers who actually really appreciated hearing these candidates speaking in Spanish, but then there were a lot of people who thought of it as pandering. So I'm curious to see how the candidates decide to approach that in the next debate. Samantha Schmidt is a reporter for The Washington Post. Julian Castro will take the stage during this week's second debate, airing Wednesday night on CNN. And now, one more thing from Brazil correspondent Marina Lopez about C-section celebrations. Here in Brazil, some of the top hospitals actually have viewing galleries where your whole family can come and watch the surgery so that they can be there for the moment of the birth. And that's obviously very different from how C-sections occur in the United States. Você sabia que existia essa possibilidade de assistir por uma For these celebrations, you can have as many people as you can possibly fit in a hospital hallway. And so the celebration I went to, there were 15 people there, all crowded around this tiny little window, waiting for the moment when the baby was going to be born. (laughs) The C-section rate here is extremely high compared to that of the United States, it's over 50%. And there's historic reasons for that and cultural reasons for that. The World Health Organization also says that C-sections are on the rise globally because they're known to lower the likelihood of infant and birth mortality. Historically, Brazilian public hospitals have not been very well equipped to monitor a woman through the, you know, 12 hours of labor. So a lot of times women who are going into labor naturally, who are having vaginal births, don't get the sort of care and attention that they would need. In a lot of public hospitals, they often run out of anesthesia, they run out of beds. And so there are a lot of stories of women having to give birth in hallways, women having to give birth with no medical assistance, of babies not being monitored as the woman is progressing in labor. All these stories are very scary, and they've created culture in Brazil where C-sections are seen as a a status symbol. If you can afford to get a C-section, you know that you are going to be adequately medicated and adequately supervised, even if it is for a shorter period of time. Marina Lopez is the Brazil correspondent for The Post. That's it for today's episode of Post Reports. Thanks for listening. 
Share your thoughts on the stories you heard today by tweeting with the hashtag PostReports. I'm Martine Powers. We'll be back tomorrow with more stories from The Washington Post.